Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. No race now, just a pavement. A loose selection of shops and scrubby spots for dogs to find their mark and shit. People drift dispassionately along the lines that defined the bunch that held the hunched-up drama of a day long since settled over by time. Even the sky is blank. It's clouds. Just clouds. Not chopped with rotor blades and crackling bright static roar, the rising racket of choreographed chaos beneath, which was the race. After the passage, the silent parade of the unexceptional resumes its place in the slow-beating breast of the world. No race now. Just a pavement. Right, you last saw me when? I saw you leaving um, the Maidstone Studios and with Pete and I were there and Pete was a little bit melancholic because he wanted to hang with you and go and have a beer and sign it all off. But you just packed some of in your bag and rode off into the night and that and was, it was how it ended. It was just about night, wasn't it? Because we'd um, it was obviously an evening finish in Paris. Uh, we'd done our commentary, we'd done the commentated over the podiums live um and then uh, pete and chris and gary had worked on the highlights show and only then had we recorded our last itv podcast so by yeah. that time i reckon it must have been gone eight o'clock and it was certainly dark it was um, exactly eight o'clock actually about was because it? i remember we called a pizza place pete and i yeah well I, i'm yeah. going to come on to the whole I'm going to come on to the whole CSI aspect of this because mm. there were some interesting um interpretive videos posted on our whatsapp group <laughs> that we'll hear, that we'll hear uh, shortly, um, which were uncannily accurate, actually, I have to say. So I rode off, David, and um, I, uh, we kind of forgot, I think all of us collectively, having commuted to and from the studios, we forgot that it was September and not July, and we forgot that over the course of three weeks, uh, because of the, the way that the Earth is tilted on its um, XY axis and the way it rotates around the sun, and the seasonality of the world, mm. um, we, we forgot that ultimately dusk would come forward and eventually there was a possibility that we would be riding back in the dark. I wasn't entirely unprepared for this, so I'd taken from my, a family member, um, I'd given my best bike lights away to, to other family members who variously off to university and bits and pieces like that, but I had rummaged around and found the most feeble uh, bike light of all which is one of those ones that doesn't have yeah you've seen it haven't you the I've one seen that it it's, it's really useful for actually using for guidance because it intermittently flashes <laughs> like strobe light it's like a strobe light on the front of your but, bike but really low frequency so you get a strobe every 10 seconds <laughs> so your eyes get enough time to get accustomed to the night light and then they get blinded again yeah, it's and, perfect. And I, 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 I didn't ride on the road. Um, I rode, there's a, there's a little pavement, country roads, it's absolutely fine. There was a little pavement and I got all the way back to our castle, which by now everyone knows we were staying in. Um, fine. I mean, it was slow progress, but it was fine. So I thought, 
So like I say, a little flash of light. Okay, memorize that, memorize that. Keep riding, keep riding, keep riding. Little flash of light, good. Nothing went wrong. Memorize that, memorize that. Little flash of light. And I got to the grounds of our castle. Now, obviously, when you go through into the grounds of a castle, there are no street lights. Um, but this is a road approaching the castle and the moat, um, which is we've ridden down every day for the last 21 mm-hmm. days, plus two rest days. You've also run it. And I've run it repeatedly. I feel I know it pretty well. I, I felt confident to um, maybe just um, ride quite fast. <laughs> and it's also, downhill as well. It's, yeah. da- it's, da- it's downhill. It's downhill. Anyway, there was a flash of light. And I knew I was coming towards a bridge. And, um, and the bridge goes over an irrigation ditch that accesses, that feeds the moat, basically. And um, I saw the flash of the parapet of the, the wall of the bridge in front of me. Now, obviously, there are two walls, one on the left and one on the right. I, the one that reared into view was the one on the left, but I misinterpreted it. My brain misinterpreted <laughs> it as being the one on the right. I therefore thought that the bit of darkness on the left was the road, and the bit of darkness on the right was a ditch. And it was a 50-50 call, and I got it wrong. Seconds later, David... I was flying through thin night Maidstone air um, into nothingness. And I suddenly, in that, in, I can remember it all. I can remember it all. I realised what had happened. And I knew that underneath me was an eight foot drop down into a ditch. Filled and with I water. Stopped. And you know me? You know me and primal fear? <laughs> oh, I know it. Yeah. Do was you there think I scream? screamed? I, th- I got for <laughs> sure you screamed. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, if you scream in space, no one will hear you. So I hit the bottom. I hit the bottom of this ditch. Was instantly soaked from head to foot, and um, my arm. I stretched out my right arm and I smashed it to bits. And uh, but I sprang up like all good cyclists do after really quite a serious accident. And I tried with my right arm to drag my bicycle back out of the ditch, and instantly felt that something wasn't right. And I somehow managed to struggle up. Out of this ditch. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. wait. Were, you, were you soaked? Completely soaked oh, so from head good. to foot. Uh, and by the way, that continued right the way through three, four hours later when I was um, awaiting an x-ray in hospital and they had to cut my clothing off me. Oh. And I was shivering ten to the dozen. I had pondweed sticking out of my hair and my, my um, feet were going squelch, squelch, squelch. I walked across the drawbridge into our castle and I was passed by some diners coming away from the restaurant who just stared at me as if I was some sort of apparition from an episode of Doctor Who or something <laughs> and uh, and I got to the security and I just said I presented myself at the lovely kind of security guys who we've got to know over the last three weeks and I said I'm in trouble and then they took it from there um, oh. but but yeah the long and short of it David is I rode into a moat can I give the meanwhile so meanwhile Pete and I are at some like little pub pizza thing and having pizza and Pete's having a beer and we decide you know what it's too dark so we call a taxi and (laughs) and this is like quarter past nine by this point it's all which is a late night for us over the last three weeks that's that's also the reason because we've never really done dark we kind of always get back yeah Yeah, absolutely so dark and so Pete and I consummate pros were like no it's too dark we're not going to ride back so that would be dangerous yeah, and so we put the Bromptons in the taxi and and come back, and we're coming through the gate, and again, Pete's like so weird about Ned. I mean, why didn't he just hang around? It's like we've had three weeks, and you know, I'm having to console him 
because he's a little bit sad about missing <laughs> Ned. Oh, bless him. And then so we're walking through the beautiful courtyard into the castle and it's all backlit and it's and I'm thinking, I'm gonna miss this. It's such a beautiful place. This has been a surreal three weeks. And as we're coming up, somebody's standing at the door for the first time ever, like a security person. And I thought, that's nice. They're just letting us in for the final day. And as we approach, they go, suppose you've heard about your friend then? And we're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> we're like, and we're like, and there's a kind of a moment of panic. So we're like, ooh, kind of what's happened? And I'm like, what, who? And they say, is it Ned? And I was like, yeah. Or <laughs> is he okay? What's happened? And he said, oh, I fell off his bike coming into the park and, and uh, fell into the stream. <laughs> I just look at Pete and I'm like, okay, um, is he okay? And he said, oh, I think he's broken his upper arm. And I'm like, ooh, okay. And Pete and I are just a little bit, there's a kind of mixed emotions because we, we thought you might have been hit by a car or something like that. And at that point, because we're both pros, we're like, okay, well, arm's not so bad, is it? <laughs> so we kind of walk into the castle and we're both quiet at our keys. And as we're walking up the stairs, I'm in front of him. And I suddenly lose it. And I can't, I like literally just like go. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, we're like almost sitting down on the stairs oh, in his derricks, just picturing it perfectly. And I, I, then I went back up to my room and I was calling Nicole and I couldn't stop laughing. And she's like, you can't laugh. And I'm like, it's so good. And then, I, then I start sending the messages, the gif of like somebody kind of going off into water. And this is all before we know what's going on. But it's like, it was just like, the well, last day. And we thought, well, that serves you right for leaving us. You should yeah, just hung with us and pizza and a beer. Karma. Yeah, and all, all the Tesco sandwiches and everything I had in my bag and the p- pasta salads that I was going to eat in my room because I just wanted a quiet night, they all got squashed. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> uh, but what I like more than anything else, in the morning when I'm already, uh, cut long story short, anyway, I'd went, I was already on my way to my second hospital. I'm back in London by now. Um, uh, my WhatsApp group started firing up with... Um, Basically, separately, you and Pete both turning into crime scene investigators, right? Here, here is a little montage of uh, your investigations. Right, so Ned will come down this hill here. In the pit black, down the hill, down the hill. It's come steaming down that road. Dark, lost it, missed the bridge comes up to this part here. The one. <laughs> I missed the bridge. Gone left into this stream. Poor bugger. Look, I actually think that's where his wheel and then in the chapeau. Uncannily David uh, you're both right. You nailed it, and that was pretty much exactly what happened. Anyway, so it was ridiculous, um, but it's very painful now, and my sympathy is um, my understanding of. Uh, you, you know, know what? I was going to say that because I was going to say you've. This is quite a, a nice kind of experience for you because you're getting a proper. Um, well, yeah. uh, in hindsight, yeah. not not right. Yeah, now, this sucks. Yeah, but you now know what it's like to crash and kind of have that, and you can get straight back up. Because your oh. body just hits itself with adrenaline. And yeah. so you don't really feel anything for a bit. I mean, it hurts, it's bruised, but then it starts to, it creeps up on you slowly. And then it, but you, you've got about, I've kind of measured it over time, about 45 minutes until it starts to really horrifically hurt. And I'd then, say that's 
bang on, David. I'd say that yeah, is totally what my experience was. And the other thing that weird. the other thing that you pros have always told me that I never understood um, is that two days afterwards, um, mm. you, you, you uh, I guess it's all the ancillary bits and pieces. So yes, I smashed my arm up, so all my focus was on my arm. Um, but actually, other bits and pieces got torn and bruised, and um, yeah. all across. And then suddenly, but it takes two days for you to feel them, and you're going, "Oh, that's strange. Mm-hmm. What's going on there?" And then black that's eyes. That's why. So that's why often you have kind of in that post crash, the doctors will come and they're checking bits of you that kind of you think is f- are fine, because you're you're focused on a primary impact point, but then yep. they're having to kind of go over, and even with the kind of concussion things, because they have to go and kind of system check you because you're totally oblivious to what's happened to you. It's just because yep. your body just goes poof, like puts on this <laughs> white light and just puts like shuts you out. But yeah, pretty amazing into the tour, Ned. Well anyway, long, long, long and short of it is, I've got um, I've got a few days. Well, I've got five days left until they're going to operate and hopefully pin it all together. And then, uh, so it's actually, is, got, it, is it clean? Is it clean snap on your humerus? No, not at all. It's a mess. Oh, it's fracture. Oh, what? Oh shit! So it's, it's actually yeah, it's all a bit crushed. It's crushed. <laughs> the, the kind of the top of the what do you call it? The ball at the top of the humerus. The top of the humerus oh, is all a bit no, a bit of a mess. Oh. And I've uh, fractured my shoulder blade. So they're going to try and pin the pin the humerus bit together. And if they can't, they're going to have to give me a fake one, I guess, like out of brass <gasps> or maybe bronze. Brass. <laughs> it's not, isn't Bar Kingdom Brunel working on you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's God. it. So that's it. Anyways, yeah. cheered me up mightily to have you take the piss out of me. So that's great. Um, <laughs> But there's nothing I could do. Just hands in the air. I flew through the night air into a moat because I was staying in a castle. So that's that's that. Um, I tell you what, David. Um, uh, let's uh, let's just um, dive away from this and let's just play a little interview that I did uh, yesterday, actually, with um, our colleague and friend who was our oppo in many ways on Eurosport, um, Rob Hatch. Um, just to see how the dust has settled on his Tour de France and to see how he got along uh, from his little berth in Mallorca. And then we'll come back and have a little bit of a natter about the racing that we've seen and the racing still to come. Rob Hatch, I'm seeing the inner workings of your commentary situation that you've got there in Mallorca. It's fascinating. I know, and I'm seeing your makeup what? hospital room as well. Equally fascinating. <laughs> yeah. How was it for you, Rob? Because, um, you know, we're used to seeing each other every third day on the, on the road, aren't we, during July? And uh, normally grab a quick coffee off someone if we can ponce a little coffee off the Italians or the Belgians or maybe even the Americans of a morning. Last resort, and, uh, that one, though, isn't it? Last resort, the Americans. It is a, li- it is a little bit, you're right. Um and we have a little natter sometimes at the end of the day when we're kind of like downing tools and heading for the car park. And that's our normal interaction, isn't it, over the course of July, apart from swapping information every now and again and stuff. But um, you've obviously been, you've been in Mallorca this entire time. Yeah, I've been at home. It's been bizarre. <laughs> that's the only description I can come up with it. It's been enjoyable as every bike race is and every, every race we're given the privilege of, of covering is. But I haven't seen my colleagues uh, I know you've been in this great castle and it's looked wonderful down in the southeast <laughs> of England. My colleagues have been split between London. Uh, so I had two colleagues in London. Jonathan and Carlton were in London. I had right. the studio lot were all in Bath. And my original plan was to join them in Bath. However, the two-week quarantine for anybody arriving from Spain put paid to that. And I decided to build a bit of a studio, which you're now seeing. It's 
you know, it's, it's, it's Rob Hatch DIY, so it's not amazing, I have to say, but it's done <laughs> the job. Um, and it, yeah, it's been absolutely bizarre. Uh, a lot of those little chats I've missed for the information and, and just the social interaction. So I've sort of gone outside for the first time yesterday and waved at people in the street for the first time because we've been working these long hours as well. I've hardly been yeah. out. And yeah, I've, I, have, I wish I could say I'd taken advantage uh, to the max of working at home, but like everything, you make all these great plans every tour. I'll do this, I'll do that. I'll get up at five o'clock every morning and go running and it doesn't always happen, does it? You get caught up in the race and now I'm sort of regretting not having made a little bit more time to enjoy it more. Uh, well, you're right there. I mean, that always happens, doesn't it? The, the mistake in my, this would have been my 18th tour on the road, but and I think the mistake I've made every single time is to pack a big novel. <laughs> what's that all about i'm a big reader but i mean I, I always pack a big novel and leave it untouched you know between the start and i mean i know you never get time it's mad so the thing that i think not we can safely say we can agree on this rob can't we that it was lovely not having to drive 350 kilometers every day that was the one saving grace that was the one thing that i did definitely not categorically miss at all because that is that is hideous um but i i must admit i did you not feel that um, you just missed some of the flavour? I mean, you're used to it now. You've been doing a whole kind of like, you know, almost pre post-lockdown, but pre-Tour um, de France. You've done a load of bike races in this way, and I've done far fewer than you. But I did find it particularly on the Tour de France where the country comes into play so much more than maybe on some of the other races. I did, I did miss some of that fine feeling for what's going on in the, as you pass through the country. Did, did you get that sense? Certainly with the tour, because I'd never covered the tour like this either. Um, obviously, given the way I'm sure a lot of people now know the way we work at Eurosport and we've got a studio yeah. and a lot of the races, even if we don't go there, I'm in London or Bath now, for example. Um, so you aren't always at the race anyway. We've got used to France. Like you said, those little strange routines we have of saying hello to people in the car park in the top of a mountain somewhere and having a coffee somewhere and a half-eaten baguette or a, a motorway service sandwich, something like that. Even the little things like that and the little areas that you would never, ever dream of going to on your holidays. The small towns yeah. that, that you and I would have never have had the, the privilege to have been to before because, let's face it, they wouldn't have been places that would have jumped out at you in a holiday brochure. Um, those are the little things I missed, really, the, the unplanned things and the visits to places that you never thought you'd go in your life. And even picking up the, sometimes, you know, when you're checking out of a Baladin hotel or a Kyriad somewhere and, and you're on your way out, you nick one of their just um, the, the newspapers they lay out for breakfast for free, you know, the local papers. Yes. And they're pretty, they're pretty useless, aren't they? You have a little glance at the meteor, you check the weather forecast and a little bit about the road closures and what the town's doing to welcoming the tour. But then there might be a little nugget in there about some local rider, you know, either Fabien Grelier or yeah. something, and it'll be something about his mum and dad, you know, running a bicycle shop or whatever that you didn't know about, or his uncle um, and his prestigious career as a basketball player or something like that. And, and that's all quite good fun, isn't it? And it adds to the, you know, adds to the mix as well. And I felt a bit d d deprived of that kind of stuff as well. Sean Kelly's normally brilliant at smelling those little newspapers out. He knows exactly which Is ones he? to look for <laughs> because he stayed in all those hotels as a rider and for, for 536 years you know um, yeah 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 and, and he'll always yeah. point to you in, in, at breakfast and you know you know shove that on your arm Sean we're having that goodbye um, <laughs> you're trying to get past the receptionist after a check you know yeah. merci ciao a bientôt <laughs> I'm not taking your newspaper with me I promise 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, um, your your friend and coll- and my colleague and your colleague at times as well, Daniel Freeb, he loves to he loves to give it a rating, doesn't he? He loves to give the Tour de France a vintage rating. Often controversial I think- vintages, I think, aren't they? Well, I, I mean, as soon as you put one up, you're going to be controversial, aren't you? So that's why he does it. Um, I'm sure that's why any of us make any kind of bold statements online. But um, but uh, I think he got, I think I'm right in saying he gave it a four. He right? did give it a four. Yes, he did give it a four. four out of five, not a four out of ten. That would be harsh. Are you with him on that? Broadly speaking. Yes, just because uh, when would you ever give a five? I'm not sure. When would you ever give a five? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I can't true. remember a tour as interesting as far as the racing's going that, that I've been lucky enough to cover, certainly not commentating in the last few years. Um, but then again, I always find looking back on a tour a much more useful exercise the year or two years down the line because I've got a really poor short-term memory. I look back and I probably can't remember half of the stages from last week already, mate. Um, and Dan- Daniel has this gift of being able to... Oh, I'm so glad. It- I'm so... Yeah. No, I just said Daniel has the gift of being able to give it um, this sort of rating, and I really struggle with that straight away anyway. I'm so glad you said that because my my medium, I don't know whether you call it a short-term memory or a medium-term. I think my my short-term memory is okay, but my medium-term memory is shot to pieces. In other words, I can kind of hold, I can hold the information in a Tour de France together for about four stages gets to the start of stage five and I'm starting to struggle, you know? Mm. And, and someone says, you know that stage that Caleb Ewan won? And I'm going, nah, it's gone. I can't remember, you know? And then I have to stop and check myself and we get to about stage 16 and I'm thinking, how many stages did Caleb Ewan win? I can't be sure. And I ha- literally, I have to go back and check. So um, they are kind of uncontainable things, aren't they? I, I, I think it's just the welter of information. And you pointed out, you've got a printer next to you, Rob. Yes, that would have been working, you know, you'll have done nothing for the environment, I'm damn sure of that, over the last three weeks, because in order to, you know, in order to keep track of a race, you've got to print off a book every day, haven't you, to, to actually know what's going on, what the score is, it's just immense. It's funny, I started this season with great environmental intentions, I had an iPad Pro, and I thought, oh, I'm going to, my start list, I'm going to highlight it with the iPad pen, and, and I'm just going to print out the start list, and for the first few races, I was fine. It's got to the Tour de France, maybe because I'm bereft of colleagues. And you know you always want these comfort blankets around you as a commentator. And all right, I'm going to print yep. that. Um, I didn't print the road book. I'll give it to myself. I didn't actually print the whole road book. But every day I did print uh, the timetable. Probably looked at it about twice a stage. Um, <laughs> and yes, I've gone through one full pack of paper already, I'm, afraid, I'm ashamed to say, in, in a Tour de France. So that's not great, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Rob, which... Um... You know, pick your top three as a commentator. Like sometimes, I don't know if you feel the same. You, you put your you put your microphone down, and you sometimes you feel like you've done a an ordinary job. You know, sometimes you feel you might have made a mistake or two and let yourself down, and and sometimes you feel sort of happy with the way it flowed between you and your co-commentators, and you, you you happen to find that the the right words were coming out of your mouth at the right time, which is kind of what it's all about. And it sounds easy, but it really isn't. Um, wh- which ones did you feel? You know, the, the, the marriage of how exciting the race was and, and how satisfied, you know, you were with you. How much you enjoyed your job? What, 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 pick a couple out. What, what went well? I'm glad you mentioned you this because I was having a thought the other day and rarely have I got to the end of a grand tour and thought, I'm really, really happy with my job overall there because it's 21 stages 
and you're always going to, for want of a better expression, cock up a few times, I'm afraid. Um, One-day races, I find it much more easy to compartmentalise and say, right, Tour of Flanders 2016, I think, when we had the double world champions. I thought, yeah, I was really pleased with what I did there. I would think I was working with Rob Hales, who I really get on with, and I know you enjoy commentating with as well. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, it, yeah you know, people that you, you do find it easier to work with. Um, Sean Kelly, for example, always find it easier to work with Sean. And, and when you're in the same room, there is that sort of understanding. This time's been a bit different just because everything else about the race has been so stressful. Everything's been new. Uh, the technology, for example... Uh, we had an absolute disaster on day one, thanks to a server outage in our headquarters in Paris. And that sort of left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth for the first week. Then we got over that. Uh, I thought I did. I really enjoyed the day that Sam Bennett won Ile de I think that was the first mm-hmm. day after the rest day. Just because yeah, I... stage 10, wasn't it? The, yeah, yeah, because we were building up something to happen and then it happened and, and you know... You, you, sometimes you can build it up and it can end up being rubbish, can't it? <laughs> but it, it sort <laughs> all of happened. Time, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the time trial day, I wasn't feeling too well. At the time trial day, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had these lines ready, prepared, because I thought Roglic was going to win. So I, I'd had these two or three lines prepared just because I wasn't feeling great. And I wanted it to sound good on the highlights because that's the bit that obviously gets replayed. So I had two or three lines they got ripped up, didn't they? <laughs> um, but nevertheless, there is something that happens, isn't there, when the action's on and you're getting on with your colleagues well um, and it just goes well. And th- th- mm. those days you haven't planned for, you haven't used your research for. And I think the time trial was really, really happy with how that came out, despite the fact that I don't think I was on my best day prep-wise or not being tired or anything like that. But but it is, it's a really interesting question and... and I'm glad you did mention that because Grand Tours are massive sources of frustration to me like that. Maybe I should chill out and try not to be a perfectionist. It's probably a good lesson that it teaches you actually because you're never going to get three weeks perfectly right, I think, however however well you try. And um, especially now that we're doing 55 hours of coverage a day from flight to line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, actually, that that... that probably that gives me an opportunity to explain that I don't, didn't get during the broadcast to a lot of people wondering why the ITV4 uh, coverage, the live coverage came on a little bit late on most days, actually, kind of two thirds of the days or three quarters or something. And that was simply a rights issue. So for, mm. I think for both Eurosport and ITV4, this, is, this was the first race in a new contract. Um, and uh, and ITV's new contract, for whatever reason, had uh, probably, probably money. <laughs> um, had, They're not uh, cheap, had the old the, rights, the, are they? <laughs> Well, they're not on the well. They're not on the Tour de France, are they? So, um, had the legal obligation to shave off something like twenty, twenty-five hours of coverage across the piece, across the whole month um, of their live coverage. And so, I think they had to plan that in advance, and they had to because um, of the schedules. Because you know, it's not a sports channel, so other things fit around it. So they had to plan in advance which stages they could probably lose the first hour, maybe sometimes two hours of. And so that, that's that's the reason they did that. Mm. And uh, I personally am quite grateful they chose stage 21, actually. <laughs> yes. and that is, I was quite happy with that. I mean, that's um, that that's an interesting planning job, actually, and one that is not never foolproof, is it? Because you never know sometimes exactly. when things are going to happen. But, you know. Yeah. And I think, and I think in, in, in fairness, I think there might have been one or two days where we were kind of like champing at the bit a bit in frustration. You know, you guys 
<clears throat> you guys were on air. We were watching the world. We were watching the international signal, and stuff was happening yeah. in a slightly unexpected manner. You know, in fact, there were there were relatively few days on this tour where the break just went. You know, 2018 seemed to be full of that, didn't it? But uh, it was it was less so. It was more a bit more of a scrap this year. I felt Frederick Backert or Guillaume van Kerspel going up the road on their own, and they're the days going that. Sean yeah. Kelly puts his newspaper down and you can see his eyes just sink. It's another coffee time <laughs> straight away. Do you know what, though? When, when we were on air a little bit late, um, an hour or so late, it was great because I, we got a sneaky, cheeky little feed into our truck in, in the UK of uh, France 2. Oh, wonderful. Um, we could watch. Yeah, it was really good, actually. So we could watch the way that the French build up to the race. We could watch all their interviews. And they had Johan Ofredo in there. In their studio, who turns out is a really good pundit, really outstanding. They have a fantastic commentary team, don't they? They have a really good commentary team. I'm not a massive Jalabert fan, I have to say. Uh, I think Alexandre Pasteur is brilliant. Marion Rousse is one of the best commentators I've ever heard. Uh, Yep. And obviously, I don't want to sound corporate here, but when those two were at Eurosport with Jackie Durand, that was the best French language coverage I think I'd ever heard. They do really have. um, And I think Tom Averclair is quite good, isn't he? He's very good. He's very feisty. Mm. And he's very, you know, given that he is the French national coach, you know, and, and during the Tour de France actually made his selection for the Worlds, you know, he's not afraid to speak his mind about the way his, uh, his riders are performing in the race. And um, obviously it wasn't a great year for the French, no. was it, one way or another. And uh, he was, uh, he's on a motorbike. He's, France Deux have um, two riders in, in, the, in the race on bikes, him and uh, Thierry Adam. Okay, yeah, the former this commentator. His, this was his... The former commentator, who actually started off on a motorbike, got promoted to being the lead commentator. And the last few years, has gone back to being mm. on a motorbike. And he announced, on I think, on the eve of stage twenty-one, that this is his last um, last race for France Television. So, um, but it's no, it's really good to watch. And um, it was a pleasure actually to be able to sort of see a little bit how other broadcasters do it, because normally we don't get the time to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So, so one of. Sh- Tell me about Sam Bennett's victory then. Were you commentating alongside um, Sean Kelly on both of his wins? Unfortunately, I only commentated the first win because uh, obviously we, we switched the finishes at, at Eurosport. Oh, so it's that either, how it works? Okay. Um, yeah. It's usually in our alternate finishes. So that was, the first one was um, me doing it with Brian. And it, yeah, it was a shame, just nothing against Brian, but it was a shame that it wasn't Sean on that occasion, obviously because of what it meant. Sean did get to do the stage 21 with Colton, and I think he would have really enjoyed that on the Sean's Elysee. Yeah, sure. uh, you could hear it in his voice that he certainly was enjoying it. Um, but no, Sam, Sam's an interesting one, because I've been quite lucky to be there for the milestones in his career, really. I remember doing the mm. one in Paris-Nice, where he beat all the big sprinters in the world in chalon sur saone I think it was. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think there was maybe only Cavendish missing that day, or somebody like that. Everybody else who was a big sprinter at the time, was there. And that was a huge victory for him. In the Giro as well. Um, so it, it felt good personally to be, to be there and calling Sam home again. Um, don't know Sam particularly well, but the few dealings I've had with him have been really pleasant, really humble. And, and I go back to that interview he gave on the Champs-Élysées the other day. And what did he tell Seb? Brilliant. I, don't, I don't wish to be seen as arrogant. And he was coming across as anything but arrogant. Uh, so no, that that was that was a wonderful win uh, for for Sam Bennett and the stage that that it happened on. We had those crashes, hadn't we? And the second week was starting, and it was becoming clear that it was going to be quite a, a pretty good tour, actually. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think with with very few exceptions, I'd, I'd give it a four and a half if I mm. if I could, and I'd I'd definitely put it right up in the same bracket. I'm not convinced it was a better tour than last year's because I thought last year's captivated me because we well partly because we were on the road in France and it was such a French story. I think 2019 is actually pretty pretty hard to beat actually for all sorts of reasons. But um, oh well, that's uh, <clears throat> that's good to know, Rob. And did anything did anything bad befall you? I remember your famous kind of internet viral video that you know you put up a few years ago of the table collapsing <laughs> when you and rob hales were were commentating in italy did you have any um you said on, on you had a few technical problems on stage one but nothing bad happened other than that did it other than that no um i mean that was pretty pretty bad Hairy. i mean because i actually didn't get on air f- apart from about a minute at the start of the day so i came on air welcome how are you sean blah 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 isn't nice wonderful and crash the whole thing came down <laughs> um but the whole thing came down due to a, a big big error yeah. back in paris so the guys in bath didn't get on air either it was only london that yeah. got on air and i think poor carton was on air for two hours on his own just for, he'd, he'd have coped with that oh yeah um, oh yeah <laughs> but i i there i think people always under you know quite understandably because why is it any concern of theirs really but you know i think once you've worked in telly for a little while you do realize you know, the almost unfathomable complication of getting good quality television pictures mm. married with audio. And especially in this lockdown year where you're taking all your audio sources from different parts of the world and everyone's, it's uh, it's unbelievably difficult. I mean, the first two days of commentary that David and I did, David was still quarantining um, up in Manchester and then he joined us on the third day. Um, you know, just to get the just to make sure that his pictures, and you've been dealing with this all along, mm-hmm. his pictures were entirely in sync with mine because his pictures were coming down a broadband link meant that um, my pictures had to be delayed by the same number of seconds and fractions of seconds that his were so that when uh, Miguel Angel Lopez slams into a lamppost, we're both going, ouch, at the same time, yeah. you know. Um, so it's, and, that, and that takes, you know, that took about an hour of setting up each day with kind of like counting time code and that to the to the frame so that it all matched up. It is incredibly complex. Now, there is a lot of uh, things. No, there are a lot of things, pardon me, like that, that, that people, as you say, why would they wonder? Because, you know, they just assume yeah, that, none of that we plug in and we start of, talking. Yeah, exactly. and why, why would you ever waste time wondering about that? Um, wherever you're listening, don't, by the way. Don't waste time thinking about that because it's complicated yeah. and it's... But I, I, I must have had about five Zoom meetings during the, the tour because this is a completely new and developing situation. The, the tech boffins at Eurosport are trying to sort this out for 21 different languages. And, OK, we're going to change to this software today because we've decided that yesterday when you called the sprint, you were a second behind. Little things like that we did have during the during the tour. But thankfully, I don't think too many people noticed. I think the people who needed to notice noticed, who were probably producers yeah. and tech people and things like that. Um, and, and I'm sure that's something that's going to change and improve. And uh, I mean, I suppose the way things are going, it has to do. Otherwise, what are we going to do all winter? <laughs> <laughs> but just, just finally, Rob, um, who knows what, you know, who, who knows what July might bring and... and um, who knows whether it's going to happen in July? I mean, I, I'd imagine we will have a Tour de France in 2021. It might might not be in its right calendar slot. Who knows? But um, if everything else falls into place, would you like to be back on the road? Always. Always. Me too. Me too. Mm. All right. Well, even if we're lone voices in the wilderness, maybe you, just you and me go. <laughs> Let's go and have a, a July holiday in France, shall we? Stay at exactly. some Kyriads and Campanils. Good, good, good stuff. And um, what's next for you, Rob? You, you on the um, World's Giro, the whole lot? Yes, World's uh, Men's Races. 
so I have the time yep. trial on Friday and the big race on on Sunday, the long one, uh, the the slow burner, and then the after burner. after that, I think uh, Giro d'Italia, and and then that will probably be it uh, because the Giro and the Vuelta clash this year. So they do, yeah. That was irritating because mm. I was going to do both, and <laughs> no, I can't. So I have to I have to prioritize ITV work, and I'll be mm. doing the Vuelta after that. So. Assuming that happens, who knows? Yes, um, we aren't in the best of situations here in Spain, I have to say. No, no. None of us are anyway, mate. Stay safe. You too. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank Cheers, Rob. Pleasure, mate. Thank you. So there we go. I mean, a couple of days. It's nice. It must be nice for you to get home, David, after the tour and everything, and get away from it all. Because, of course, you had to, much like Rob Hales, uh, Rob Hales, Rob Hatch was stuck in Mallorca. You were kind of at first stuck in Spain, and then you were stuck at your sister's house, quarantining before you could join up with all of us. And you've been away for a long time. Yeah, I have five weeks of a two weeks quarantine. But you know what? It was it was fine because I stayed with my sister, so that was nice and chilled up north which was family again and then to be honest staying at the castle for three weeks it's the calmest you come out of it not at all frazzled you know yeah, true. you know i can see why queens over the centuries have stayed at leeds castle it's got a very nice feng shui to it and it's a, it was the first time we've ever done that and i know it's it's mixed emotions because obviously logistically it was nice having that routine but at the same time you miss the energy of the tour de france uh, but that energy also saps you so coming yeah. home, I'm kind of for the first time, I've come home and I unpack my bag immediately and got everything <laughs> organized and tidy. I'm mean, I feel kind of ready to go. Whereas normally I come back, my bag stays there for five days unpacked and it's just, ugh. So this is yeah. actually, so it's a mixed emotions in that sense. We did certainly, I know you missed it massively, um, but I, I empathize with that because we don't, although we're never part of the race, essentially, when we're there commentating, so we're always just on the periphery. We don't get the vibe, the energy. We don't get to see things. We don't get that kind of first person. You're not sharing the whole experience. It's just us kind of dropping into Tesco's Extra on the way back from the studio. A lot of Tesco's Extra. I I missed it most keenly, funnily enough, on stage 21 on the Paris stage, Mm. where, you know, we we do get that sense of a completed journey whether or not you know and there's always that moment where you spot the Eiffel Tower when you're coming into Paris the night before and everything and even after after the broadcast has finished that randomness of stepping out of the back of the truck basically onto the Champs-Elysees which is already being dismantled and the barriers are being taken down and everything because it's quite late at night and then you know you'll be sitting there crack open a can of beer having a chat and quite often you know the yellow jersey of the Tour de France will literally just ride past you with a soigneur running alongside, yeah. you know, as if they were just, a, well, in this case, literally a kid out on their bike, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and that kind of closeness to the race, I really felt keenly in Paris. Um, so, but, but there we go. But the thing that I wanted to flag up, David, is the racing just continues. I mean, it's just insane, isn't it? That yeah. t- tomorrow, um, well, it depends when you're listening to this podcast, but Thursday, I think I'm right in saying, is the women's time trial at the World Road, uh, road race championships and on it goes it's intense i mean I, I tell you one of the interesting things i found as well because i think uh, as commentators we were sometimes a little bit underwhelmed by the racing because of the yumbo visma dominance and yet all i'm hearing from everybody is how much they love the race the whole thing and i think and i spoke to a couple of people about this and they enjoyed seeing another team dominate and seeing yeah because they're, they're people they don't know 
and yeah. as well as we do. And then obviously you had it kind of bookended by that first crashy day. Then you had Philippe doing a brilliant ride and almost starting off where we finished last year. And then it became it became a real mixed bag of the last few tours. In the sense you had that team like Sky kind of doing that, but then you also had this amazing what we're becoming uh i'd say spoiled with incredible racing and new young, young riders coming through and it meant that we had this properly almost modern tour de france where you had a bit of everything rather than the kind of the madness of last year or the systematic controlling of the previous years and so it was it was new and I, i'm wondering whether that's something we can come to expect in the coming years oh it was great i mean all the subplots there guillaume martin tilting at windmills like don quixote um, I even thought, you know, in terms of understanding what the Tour de France is all about and how a, a stage race works, I actually thought, you know, Adam Yates and his experience was a really good case in point. You know, if you study what happened to him, the ambitions, his stated aims when he went in and what he came out with the other end and how he was caught betwixt and between. And you could almost see the kind of decision making process going on in his words and his mm. utterances every single day. I thought that was a real education about the complexities yeah. about, you know, the various different targets you can reach out to. I thought, I loved the fact that the King of the Mountains jersey was what it was. I thought it was extraordinary that Benoit Cosnefroy, you know, just hung on to those 36 points forever <laughs> and a day. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, it all came to nothing because it was a GC race. Um, Sunweb was just incredible, yeah. you know. You're right, because I think if that was the first time you ever watched a Tour de France, it would be a Tour de France where you're getting lessons from everything. You could learn yeah. so much about cycling just from watching those three weeks from the kind of, but then you'd have the, but then what's great about it, you'd then think it was normal for a Wout van Aert to be able to do everything. And you'd think that a 21 year old can win a Tour de France. So all of a sudden you look back at the other years and you're like, well, why can't you? Why didn't they do that in the past? And that's a question we don't, an answer is a question that we're asking, but at the same time, it's, um, I think the answer is it's just a new generation in a different sport. And the fact that these things are now happening, it's setting a new kind of paradigm of what's possible. And I think it's, it's going to make the Tour de France all the more exciting. The fact that you have from a Wout van Aert to an Alaphilippe doing what he does, as he said, an Adam Yates, you have a Cosnefroy, you have uh, he or she doing these amazing things like that 90k breakaway he did. <laughs> was just the stuff of legends and then getting caught and then still nearly winning the stage with the GC riders, but then going and do it again. And then yep. you have a 21-year-old that just doesn't give up. Yep. Then you have the Richie Port, this this guy who's been, has this black cloud over him. Well, we perceive it as because something always happens to him. And yet for the first time, he actually makes it through. There's some sort of romanticism to that. While his daughter's born during the race, you have uh, the Pogaccia thing, which has just made Bernal just look average now. And it's just kind of, it's, it's almost like this has been the most ultimate storybook Tour de France when you look back at it now, even with a couple of days. And you haven't even mentioned Sam Bennett and Peter oh, Sagan. Oh, yeah, Sam Bennett. My wife does a you great know. Sam Bennett impression, by the way. Does she? That's know, quite a hard it, thing to do because it's a very uh, specific kind of Irish accent, isn't it? I, she I, I wouldn't, wait, I wouldn't she's dare. Out at the moment. If she comes back, I'll get her to do it. She loves <laughs> Sam Bennett. She thinks he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think he's amazing, and I—he's I, I, a very restrained soul, isn't he? And I, he's very—you know—he's the definition of humble, really. Mm. And um, but I loved—I loved the fact that on a completely empty Champs Elysees, when he won that stage, he—you know—lifted his green bike over his head, and uh, and kind of like <laughs> shouted into the night sky and everything, and it all came flooding out. And then he apologised if he was coming over as arrogant, but um. <laughs> 
But it was just in, it was just incredible. I thought Sam Bennett, and that really captivated people. And I think the, the I think Pete spoke about it in the ITV podcast that we did. That the the lovely kind of um, overlap and synergy of his um, of his biography with Sean Kelly, yeah. I think, is uh, is really special. So yeah, wherever you looked, it was it was full of detail. The thing about Sam Bennett as well, which I find also is the kind of the opposite to a Pogaccio who's just come exploding onto the scene like he or she. Sam slow Bennett build. has all, slow been build. a slow build. He's been your classic, just doesn't give up. And it's yeah. it's not been a hard road, but it's been a, a tough one in the sense that he, he's been dealing with these flashes in the pan that come and go. And he's just been going through, literally through the ranks from small teams up, kind of scaling up and, and always been loyal to those teams. And if you look through his Palmares, there has been a steady trajectory through it all. And it's Absolutely. taken until 29 to get this, which I think is also a good thing to take away because there'll be a lot of young riders seeing these 21-year-olds and thinking, well, I'm not good enough. Well, if you yep. go back eight years, Sam Bennett was on a small team kind of earning his stripes. And mm. it's been a real kind of slow progression. And then in the final week of this year's Tour de France, we've never seen him better and he's 29. And you think, well, I, that's good. I remember, being on, I remember being on the Tour of Britain. I was presenting the Tour of Britain when he won his first pro race, I think. It was in the Lake District somewhere on a bit of a punt. It was a kind of a, you know, what you call a bunch sprint in the Tour of Britain is often, often quite a reduced sort of, you know, field, not with that, never yeah. with any big lead outs. It's always a bit scrappy, but suited Sam Bennett down to the ground. It was a bit of an uphill, slight uphill sort of thing to it as well. And I remember everybody had been talking him up and talking him up. And that, that moment was kind of a huge, felt like a huge milestone, but it was actually only the first step in really, really very long journey. And I also think that people are unaware, or, or many people are unaware of quite how, um, uh, how difficult managing his exit from Bora Hansgrohe was and signing mm. for Quickstep. That was a very protracted, uh, very messy and really quite um, tricky situation because they didn't want to let him go. They were putting obstacles in his way. And also, it's just not in... I think we've come to know Sam Bennett really well from the number of interviews he's had to give. It just wasn't in his nature. No, he's not a conflict. No, he's not a conflict. He, he wants, to, wants to avoid conflict. And, and yet he found himself in a position for the best, for the benefit of his career. He had to put his hand in the air and say, I need to get out because you're blocking me. Yeah. You know, and, and, that's great, that's and, great, and that's a great subplot as well to this year's Tour de France, which wasn't really focused on that. The fact that it got so messy between him and Bora Hansgrohe and not that he's the type of person to have bad blood, but they didn't take him to the Tour de France because of Peter Sagan. And then this year it becomes Battle Royale between uh, Sam Bennett and Bora Hansgrohe. And Sam Bennett just dominated them and de Koenig. And you think, well, that's pretty cool. And that's uh, for sure. I think I can probably say that that wasn't a focus point, but there's no doubt anybody would take a little bit of pleasure from that. You know, kind of being in there and realizing how the tables have turned, and it's, I, I'd be surprised, although he'd never admit it, if deep down there was a, a certain amount of, uh, he took something from that that fueled him as well, because it was and, just that was brilliant. And equally, I think there was a certain amount of, um, I think it was quite chastening for Peter Sagan as well, and I think that yeah. was probably quite, I think that was quite difficult for him to stomach. But you um, know what was good about it, and and it goes, even when it was. A, I wouldn't say a lost cause, but it was appearing because he couldn't. He was getting beaten out. He w- impossible for him to beat Sam Bennett in a sprint. Couldn't even beat yeah. Sam Bennett's lead out man, yeah. Murku. Yeah, but yeah, he didn't give up. He didn't like spit his dummy and go right. Forget about the green jersey. I'm now just going to chase a stage. The whole yeah. team still went after it, which I think is credit to Sam Bennett as well, and, and is is respectful. 
because yeah. it goes to show that Pete, it wasn't ever kind of Sam Bennett won it by default, which is what often happens with the green jersey because you don't have a, a Peter Sagan in second place who's going to bully you down. And yep. so Peter Sagan's never had that before. So it's cool to see Peter Sagan in that kind of chasing position and still being that champion that goes for it. Because yep. uh, I think a lot of guys would have just said, you know what, I'm not going to be able to beat him. Let's chase stages. And he was like, nope, let's keep going for it. I thought yeah. that was cool. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was immensely cool. Um, uh, David, this is already quite a long podcast. Let's wrap yeah. it up. But let's, let's, yeah. aim to, um, let's aim to do some stuff over the weekend, maybe, with because yeah. I'll be waiting for my operation, yeah. waiting for the one phone last, to ring on yeah. Sunday night. What, let's on. do one last yeah. thing, though. Uh, favorite and best, favorite and worst moments right. of the tour, like racing. Um, I try. I'll put do mine first. Yeah, you've obviously thinking, got. You've got. Yeah, you've got. Do, one I was just thinking about now. Um, yeah. Pogaccia on Perisord. I thought yeah. the way because he'd lost um, the time the day before, and the way he he rode because we had all that power data because we have that now. Watching how he did that was just yeah. immense because it just crumbled. And then the first attack he did was what, like he did at the Volta last year, where he sort of teased. But even that yep. teasing just ripped it to pieces and it looked like a significant attack. And then he did the second attack and it was just so, it was so much more powerful than the first one. I remember and, you saying that. Yeah. And I yeah. Was just, that was mind blowing. And yeah. everyone was like, oh, they let him go because he's far down. Nobody let him go. And in hindsight, <laughs> nobody let him go. And you kind of realize at that moment you saw that he was going to go for it. And I just thought everyone was underestimating him. But yeah. it, so I thought that was pretty magical. Um, but, I would say yeah. I would say my favorite my favorite stage to comment on bar, commentate on bar none was stage seven from Albi to wherever it was, um, uh, and uh, that was just that was that had two distinct phases to it, but it never let up. And the first stage was all about the climbs, and the second stage the second phase was all about the crosswinds, and it was all about Baller Hansgrohe and the way they rode, and it was so ballsy to take that on that far that out cool. and, to know, and to know that if you if you split the peloton and drop groups off on that first climb that you recognized instantly as being the Gianni Moscon climb from yeah. two years previously where he punched Elie Gebert um, but to know that if you're going to do that you've got to commit to it and you've got to ride for another 160 kilometers and then face the crosswinds on the last 40 kilometers that were almost inevitable that day I thought that was with respect to Peter Sagan and Bora Hansgrohe I thought that was their finest hour, actually. That was and in immense. the end, in the end, they didn't get the stage win because obviously Wout van Arts did. And yeah. um, in terms of the general classification, you know, Tade Pogacar lost one minute twenty-one and came back and won the race. So I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what overall effect it had, but it was superb to watch. Um, it was. Uh, I thought that was the best day's racing. There you go. That was my cool. pick. Um, worst I've had to think about because that's quite hard. Cause I can't really think of one. Then I just thought now, probably watching Roglic crumble. Horrible, horrible. But also, because but also, it wasn't horrible, was it? It was kind of beautiful in a dark way because was, uh, we suddenly, yeah. for the first time, we saw the human being, and it was, mm. you know, with his. I think it was. Didn't it was more and, just, I guess, for me as an expert, empathising with him and knowing what it's like when you're in a time trial and it's just not happening, and then yep. him having to endure that and kind of projecting myself into his head and yep. kind of imagining the turmoil he was going through. Oh, that's good. That doesn't leave you. That's horrible. So yeah, so yeah. I guess that one for me. Yeah. Otherwise, I can't really think of anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah. I, I thought, actually, I thought um, in terms of horrible, I thought stage one was pretty ghastly, actually, because oh, yeah. if you think back, it was stage one. And uh, get back into our mindset there. We thought the Tour de France might be five stages old before mm. it was abandoned. You know, don't forget the febrile 
kind of fragile nature of the whole enterprise at the beginning. And not only that, so you're faced with this slightly unwise thing to do anyway that seems to have been rammed through politically. Let's have a Tour de France in the middle of a pandemic. Well, that's a stupid idea. Um, and then... <laughs> And then, um, and then you've suddenly got this, you know, terrible race where I, I gather. I was listening to Luke Rowe and Geraint Thomas's podcast yesterday, and they said eighty-eight riders crashed that day. Wow! You know, yeah. and and that was and that was um, that was with a neutralized. You know, that was yeah. that was that was with them neutralizing the final descent. And actually, I felt really uncomfortable with that because that wasn't sport; that was physics. And you yeah, know, kind of. It was, and you, and you can f- and you can empathize with them now. <laughs> I can totally empathize with them. <laughs> Hey, David, David, yeah. we need to say that we are running a competition, aren't we? Yes, so, um, with the roadbook. To, to, e- to enter the competition, go to the Roadbook website, follow the links, and it's all there. It's plain as day, www.roadbook.co.uk. Um, and there are four prizes to be won by four. By four. David, I'm going to hang up. My doctor's calling. We'll okay, all right, all bye. Right. <laughs> Um, David, which is which is good. It's good because it's free stuff and it's fun. And um, there are four prizes on offer, and all you need to do, I think, is register at um, roadbook.co.uk. And um, you guys at Chapter Three have kindly put some stuff up. What can you have? Yeah, we've got a two hundred and fifty pound voucher to buy anything you like off Chapter Three dot com, and wow. one of our non purchasable. Uh, Face masks, which are really cool, actually. We've made it out They're, of our, some of our um, excess stuff we have. So, yeah. I've got, I've got one. They're very good. They're excellent. I shall uh, I wear one down to the hospital with pride when I good eventually man. go there. Um, and Roadbook are putting up um, for a pri- two prizes, actually. One is um, signed and numbered uh, 2018 and 19 Roadbooks for free. There you go, um, as a little prize. And uh, the other one is, and I'm quite... I've got slight misgivings about letting this go, actually. But <laughs> you you know that every um, race I do together, I, I handwrite everything, David, in a, in a yeah. W. H. Smith notebook. It's a beautiful it's, thing. I, I well, not really. It's massively. a bit scrappy, but it's the only way. But my adult memory will work. I have to kind of transcribe stuff down, and it. So it's my handwritten commentary notes that I fill in every day, and as the race progresses as well. So, for example, on time trial day, you'll see all my frantic and terrible maths as I try and work out who's going to get on the podium and who isn't. Uh, plus, you know, uh, all the salient details that make sense to me and everything. Well, basically, I'm going to give those up and the original commentary notes are going to be, um, if we can do it, uh, removed from their original uh, binding and bound in a red uh, hardback roadbook kind of format. So um, that would be, um, I'm quite sad to see them go, but I think that hopefully that's quite a special prize mm. and... Um, and there we go. All right, so roadbook.co.uk for that. David, we shall never stray far pretty soon again, shall we? We shall. All right. Thanks for all your sympathy, by the way. Yeah, yeah, pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, David. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.